Well, good afternoon. I want to thank you all for coming out today. Uh, my name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. And I want to welcome you to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, both those of you who are here in person and all of those uh, who are listening and watching at home. Uh, great to have you here today. We're going to have, a, <clears throat> I think, a pretty interesting and lively discussion. Uh, as you may know, the latest uh, trustees report from the Social Security trustees uh, indicated that the Social Security Disability Trust Fund will be technically insolvent uh, by 2016. Uh, that is, it will have sufficient funds to pay only 80% of disability benefits. In recent years, the program expenditures, uh, applications, and number of beneficiaries have all grown substantially. Uh, the recent growth and the program's financial problems have caused increased scrutiny for the program and brought uh, some new ideas and new public policy discussion on this uh, important topic. Today, we are really gratified to have an extraordinarily high-powered panel uh, to discuss this uh, of divergent views, where you're going to hear uh, some very different ideas on how much trouble the program's in, uh, what's causing that trouble, and what can be done to fix it. And I'm just thrilled to sort of have this uh, uh, pan-ideological uh, discussion uh, here that I think is going to, be, uh, going to be very lively and very interesting. Uh, I will uh, be introducing the speakers sort of one at a time as they come up. I just want to tell you we are we're grateful for all of them to be here. Uh, they're all going to make some presentations, and then later on we'll get to some questions uh, from you folks as well. Uh, we're going to start it off, if we can, uh, with my colleague uh, Jagadish Gokhale, who's also a senior fellow here at Cato. Uh, he's internationally recognized as an expert on entitlement reform and fiscal policy, uh, a former uh, senior economist with the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Uh, he is a member of the Social Security Advisory Board, uh, and so he certainly knows this topic uh, from inside and out. Uh, he's been with Cato for a number of years, writing on Social Security issues, on U U European debt issues, uh, on entitlement reform in general. Uh, he's also has an important uh, uh, work that was done for us in Regulation Magazine on, uh, on the Social Security disability problem. And we are very delighted that he can join us today. So Jagadish, you're up first. Thank you, Mike. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, so the topic is disability insurance, and I'm going to dive right in. My presentation is going to be broad and general, uh, outlining uh, very briefly the history and some of the key statistics that I think are important and that give us some clues about uh, how the program is functioning, where it's going financially, and so on. Of course, then the other panelists will dive into even more greater detail, and we'll have a discussion at the end. So to begin with, uh, let me just uh, uh, begin at the beginning uh, with the definition of Social Security. The current definition is about temporary disability, essentially. Uh, it specifies a health condition that prevents earnings at the, at the substantial uh, um, uh, gainful activity level. And uh, uh, the health condition should be expected to last continuously for at least a year or result in death. That's the current definition. So two questions that right off the bat we need to think about is, does SSDI, the Social Security Disability Insurance 
program offer an adequate safety net for the truly disabled? And my take on that answer is certainly yes. But a subsequent question that is also important, I think, are, uh, are those with marginal health impairments, but with some workability, enrolled into the program or are being allowed onto the program? And I think that answer is also yes. But I think a, another distinction that is necessary to uh, make and learn about is a question of whether it's the policy itself or whether it's policy compliance or compliance with the policy by the agency that's important for the second uh, uh, answer to the second question being yes. And my take on that is it's mostly the former, that is it is the policy and not uh, failure of policy compliance, but the policy itself causes gaps in compliance as suggested uh, by ex post measures of compliance with the policy. So improved DI policies would, I think, reduce the perceived gaps in compliance. So SSDI was introduced in 1956. At that time, allowances were based on long and indefinite duration disabilities. So it's basically a definition of permanently, uh, someone who's permanently disabled, expects, expected to be permanently disabled. And benefits at that time were allowed only for those aged 50 and older before retirement. Three key policy liberalizations are relevant. In 1965, the definition was changed from permanent to temporary disability, which is the current definition I mentioned in the previous slide. So someone might recover from a disability after 12 months, but has the option of remaining on, onto the program. In 67, the adjudication on disability cases was based also not just, not just on ability to work or judgment about ability to work, but also on job availability in the national economy, the age, education, experience, and other uh, vocational and demographic related factors, which by law must be followed when uh, deciding disability cases. And these are constraints on uh, disability adjudicators' uh, decisions about whether to allow someone onto the program or not. And finally, a key uh, change was allowances under subjective claims or assessments of uh, pain and mental uh, impairments, which obviously have no objective medical criteria for making a decision. Uh, so uh, decisions are based on evidence provided by medical practitioners, vocational, and so on, experts uh, on these uh, uh, types of impairments. And obviously, would because of the lack of objective medical criteria, would lead to uh, uh, type 1 and type 2 errors in decision making. So let me come to kind of the broad overview of where the, where the program is going. So this chart is, uh, I've calculated from the current population survey data, which looks at adults aged 25 to 29. So uh, the baseline, the base, basic population is those um, uh, uh, who would be insured under the program who have a work-limiting, self-report a work-limiting impairment. Uh, but over time, secularly, we see that the program is acting like a massive gravitational force, attracting people into itself and inducing people to reduce uh, or exit the workforce, reduce their labor force attachments or eliminate their labor force attachments and enroll, seek enrollment into SSDI. And once they are in, in, in the program, the, the uh, this change has been secular over the last two, two and a half decades, and it indicates that the program is providing some significant 
uh, work disincentives for this population. Uh, that's a key statistic that I think is telling about how forceful the forcefully the program is attracting people and pulling them off the workforce, inducing them to enroll if they have some kind of work-limiting impairment. That's a secular trend, and I think it's significant uh, information. This uh, information, I think, is, uh, was first uh, motivated by Richard Burkhauser in his book. I've just put some more flesh into the statistics by looking at the data every year going back uh, through 1987. Another... So turning to compliance issues, uh, policy compliance issues, I think uh, this chart is quite telling. It shows the distribution of ALJ allowance rates. So administrative law judges, when they hold hearings, they have to eventually decide whether someone gets onto the program based on the law and their judgment about uh, the severity of impairments. This data is from uh, the two, uh, first decade of uh, uh, the 2000s, first decade in, in this uh, uh, millennium uh, in this uh, century, and then uh, it's it's the large variation that you see obviously here. Some ALJs allow more than 90 or 95 percent of the cases. Uh, others allow only 30 or 40 percent of the cases. Such a wide variation suggests that not all ALJs are approaching uh, 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 disability hearings in the same manner. So you might think of two possible ways of interpreting why this kind of this wide variation might arise. One hypothesis might be that all the ALJs are very similar in how they approach the cases, but case assignments are non-random, and some ALJs consistently receive the most severely impaired cases, and the others uh, the opposite. That would potentially produce this kind of a wide distribution. The other extreme hypothesis is that. Uh, assignments by impairment severity are random, but ALJs, DLJs are not adjudicating the cases similarly. Now, cross your correlation coefficients, that is, looking at how persistent the rankings are in terms of allowance rates across ALJs, is very high. It's 0.9 for the years that I've studied in the 2000s, which suggests that two is more likely than one as uh, a valid hypothesis of why this variation is so wide. I really recommend you studies by Maesters, Nicole Maesters at the Rand Corporation and Jay Song of the Social Security Administration, who studied uh, the implications of this, this type of decisional variance at the initial and the ALJ decision levels. And they suggest that better design of the decision procedures would have salutary effects on how the program works. It would improve decisional consistency it would reduce system costs, and it would reduce applicant hardship because of long waiting times as the quality of the decisions and accuracy of the decisions that they receive is improved. Now, I'm not suggesting that this suggests um, deliberate or uh, inconsistent compl policy compliance by ALJs. I've actually met with a lot of the ALJs. I've met with the leadership. Uh, I've had formal and informal discussions with them about their procedures, and I think they're very committed cater uh, of uh, administrative law judges and claims representatives. I think they're interested in completing their jobs correctly and following the letter of the law. This is not about, there may be a few bad apples, and the system does have procedures to detect and retrain uh, the, the personnel involved. But 
it, uh, my take here is uh, that the policy itself makes achieving uh, policy compliance very difficult. So it's the policies, not the intent of the personnel who uh, are in charge of implementing those policies. This, is, uh, this next chart is about increasing DI prevalence rates as reported by the Social Security trustees. And as I mentioned, since, since the mid 80s, when the law was changed to in in include um, or allow subjective uh, assessments of mental and uh, musculoskeletal, that is back, mostly back pain related uh, impairments, uh, um, during the mid, from the mid-1980s through the early 1990s, you see a, a fairly flat rate of, uh, uh, of the prevalence rate of, so the prevalence rate is essentially the number of beneficiaries per thousand insured in, uh, in the population. But after the 1990, early 1990s, the prevalence rate is uh, taken off uh, northward. And um, this slide also shows projected prevalence rates that the trustees report for future years beyond the current year for which the, the, they have historical data. And one might be tempted to conclude that the trustees are doing a poor job of projecting future prevalence rates uh, in DI. To show you some more detail of the recent years, in each projection year, you can see uh, the, the actual realization in the next year is above the, rate, the rate prevalence rate projected in the previous year. So this underestimation or under projection of the prevalence rate, I think, Someone, some people might say trustees are not up to doing a, a good enough job in making the projections. I actually don't draw that conclusion. I think that this, in, this is information for us. So if I were in charge of making such projections, what would I do? I'd take the insured population in one year, in the current year, and I would age it over uh, future years using mortality and so on, historically observed demographic trends, uh, add to it the amount of uh, additional insured uh, that will enter the insured population, roll off those who would be uh, shifted over to the uh, uh, OSI program at the older uh, end of the age uh, distribution, and apply to them historically observed uh, incidence rates of uh, uh, acquiring a disability and entering into the program. If I follow that methodology, maybe with a few other adjustments, whatever is necessary, and make these projections, and every year that I make this, these projections, the realized, the, next, the realized outcome the next year uh, exceeds my projections, that's actually information. It's telling us that beyond the standard projection methodology that I might apply to make future projections, there's something more going on. There's some behavioral change. The system is not in a stable, steady state. That's what this kind of uh, outcome or comparison of past projections with actual realizations tells us. So the prevalence rate is growing faster than what we expected to grow, and that's happening consistently, not just in the recent past, but throughout the 90s and so on. 1996 was an exceptional year when the trustees got their projections to be above what was subsequently realized. Um, so I think this is information that the trustees are giving us, 
And I think it's the wrong conclusion to draw that they are not doing their job adequately or appropriately. I think they are, but we just have to look for that information and draw the right conclusion. So as Mike mentioned, the trust fund is uh, facing insolvency in a couple of years. And uh, unfortunately, policymakers don't seem to be as, um, don't seem to be exhibiting the urgency that I would have expected to see, uh, to debate, discuss, and uh, uh, draw up legislation for policy changes. But what direction should policy changes take, I think, one familiar refrain from supporters of the current DI system is that we should do no harm. But I think there's two ways of interpreting that. Don't change the DI system. One way is don't change the DI system so that those who truly deserve the benefits are denied or their benefits are reduced. But another interpretation of do no harm, which I think is underrepresented in the debate, is that easy or relatively easy eligibility to DI itself might constitute harm because it increases uh, dependency on the program and erodes work skills in the, in the population. Uh, lately, the program is uh, viewed as a fallback source of support by those who are long-term unemployed, but the DI program provides incentives for if they can get on, it absorbs them permanently into the system, which is another anti-work uh, incentive or increase in work disincentives. So I think reform options that ought to be debated might hark back to the types of options we saw during uh, uh, welfare reform. One option is that the SSDI program should really face uh, or really be charged with a dual mandate, not just a mandate for providing a social safety net to those who are uh, work disabled, but also to, on the other hand, make sure that uh, work disincentives from the program are minimized. Other nations have done so, especially Netherlands, the Sweden, the UK, and so on. They have prioritized work uh, um, uh, before you get access to public benefits. And that's an approach that ought to be uh, seriously considered. So that's the bottom line. Uh, look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Jagadish. Uh, next up is David Autor, who is the professor uh, and associate department head of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Department of Economics. Uh, and if there's anybody who probably should get credit for bringing this issue to the forefront, uh, I think it's uh, Professor Autor, who has uh, really written a great deal on this and caught a lot of attention from the media. Uh, those of us who uh, labor sort of in the academic vineyards uh, can only envy uh, sometimes uh, when, when people manage to break through into the mainstream media uh, with the academic research, and he certainly has on this issue. Uh, he's, uh, in addition to uh, the job at MIT, he's a faculty research associate for the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's editor-in-chief of the Journal of Economic Perspectives, generally acknowledged as one of the leading uh, scholars on disability and labor supply, and uh, we're just delighted to have him here today. So, Dr. Otter. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, very generous introduction. Um, so I want to talk about uh, uh, ways to modernize the U.S. Social Security disability insurance system. And let me start off by saying that I, I'm a supporter of the Social Security disability insurance system. I have concerns about it, but I'm fundamentally in favor of it. Uh, it's a crucial piece of the U.S. safety net. It uh, has been for more than 50 years. 
uh, all of us benefit from it, even if we are not currently disabled, because we all face significant risks of becoming disabled. And uh, it provides access to, uh, to cash assistance, to health care, and to support to our dependents as well. Uh, so it does a lot of good, a great deal more good than harm. However, uh, the program uh, has a number of significant issues and also opportunities for improvement. Uh, one is that the outmoded categorical definition of disability, you either are disabled and cannot work or are not disabled and can work, is uh, prevents the program from helping people who are on that margin where they have work limitations uh, but could potentially participate in the labor force with assistance. Uh, this leads to a dual misdirection of resources. Uh, too little money is spent helping workers to remain employed despite work limitations, and too much is spent uh, unintentionally fostering long-term dependency. Um, I would say, uh, going further than Jagdish, these problems are primarily not SSA's fault. These are a fault of the way the law is written. Uh, the law needs to be changed. I think SSA does a very good job, given its resources and the complexity uh, of the mission that it's, it's carrying out. Um, so there are four points I want to discuss. One, how do we know the program is in bad health? Some would disagree. I, I assume uh, Steve will uh, disagree with me in a uh, few minutes from now. Uh, what direction should policy change towards? Uh, and then specifically, I'm going to talk about one potential avenue for reform, a proposal that uh, I've written with my co uh, Mark Duggan of the, of, uh, of the Wharton School. And he and I have uh, done a lot of work together on disability. So Mark deserves a great deal of credit. Uh, and then I want to conclude by uh, uh, stressing that one needs to proceed with caution because uh, almost all reforms uh, will create challenges, including creating winners and losers, even uh, well thought through reforms. Okay, so uh, disability under Social Security is uh, based upon your inability to work. No benefits, I'm quoting from SSA website, no benefits are payable for partial disability or for short-term disability. Um, that idea that you either are uh, disabled and therefore unable to work, or uh, or you are not disabled and therefore must work, is actually at odds with the way that we view disability at present. So, for example, the Americans with Disability Act of 1990 says uh, the nation's proper goals regarding individuals' disability are to assure equality of opportunity, blah, blah, blah. Physical or mental disabilities in no way diminish a person's right to fully participate in all aspects of society. However, if you are an SSDI recipient, you, in fact, do not have those full rights. Or if you exercise them, you will ultimately lose your benefits. And that's a very powerful disincentive uh, against work. Um, one way we can see the, uh, the issues with disabilities is to look at the uh, SSDI enrollment. So this is this just the gross fraction of adults 25 to 64 who are receiving uh, SSDI in point in time, which has risen from you know, mechanically zero at the time the program was uh, created to about almost 5% as of 2012. Um, now, that ha combines many factors that contribute to this role. Let me be clear. One of the, none of them is population. This is divided by population. But other factors uh, can come into play. One would be population aging, very commonly discussed. However, it needs to be made clear that a lot of the growth of disability is within age category. So then comparing 1989 and 2009, these are males exclusively. And you can see within every age category, it's typically in increased on the order of a third. And it's increased the most among, uh, among younger groups. Uh, so a lot of the growth of disability is rise in age prevalence among the young. If we look at women, those differences are much more pronounced. Some of that is because more women are now entitled for SSDI due to a longer work history. But at least the uh, calculations that I have done, uh, I, again, I think Steve is going to differ, uh, 
suggest that women's uh, rise in labor force participation is a very small part of the total growth. A lot of it is growth in claims rates among women of a given age who are entitled or, in other words, have, have become insured by SSDI by working enough. Um, as Jagdish emphasized a minute ago, the percentage of adults who have a self-reported disability has not changed in any significant extent over the last 20 years. And there's no reason to think it has. There's no reason to think that population health is declining in the United States. All evidence points in the opposite direction. We do have some adverse trends having to do with diabetes and obesity, but by and large, population health is improving, as is longevity, and self-reported rates of disability among the elderly are declining very rapidly. Nevertheless, the, sh the share of adults who are SSDI recipients has increased uh, tremendously in this same period by, among, among men by about a third, among women, uh, it has uh, doubled. So uh, the contrast of no change in prevalence of disability with a large increase in the fraction of people receiving disability uh, is another warning sign. Another warning sign, this also goes back to Jagdish's slides, is the employment gap between adults with and without a disability. In 1988, men without a disability were about 60 percentage points, sorry, men with a disability were 60 percentage points less likely to be working. Women with disability were 50 percentage points less likely to be working than men and women uh, who did not have self-reported disability. By 2008, that gap had increased to 70 percentage points among men and 60 percentage points among women. So uh, even conditional and reported disability, employment rates are going down. Uh, a very likely explanation is that more individuals uh, who have a self-reported disability are receiving disability benefits and therefore face a strong incentive not to participate to any significant extent. Um, the growth in disability has accompanied a very dramatic change in the diagnoses for which, through which people are qualifying. Uh, back in 1983, the largest categories of awards other than other were uh, circulatory disorders, which are heart diseases, and neoplasms, which are cancers. Uh, at this point, by far the largest category is musculoskeletal disorders, primarily back pains, uh, and mental disorders. Um, those are a reflection of a number of things. One is the change in the law in 1985 that allowed uh, that subjective disorders, pains, and mental illness uh, to be uh, uh, given the same weight as other uh, as other uh, impairments, although they're much, much harder to verify. Uh, second, of course, is reflects progress against uh, circulatory neoplasms. But at this point, the majority of people entering SSDI are entering with these categories that are difficult to verify, uh, have early onset, they, people enter with these categories relatively young, and have very low mortality, meaning that people it will enter young and stay on the SSDI program until they reach the full retirement age. Uh, so these are much more expensive claims, actually, uh, than the typical uh, claim, at least in terms of uh, payment of cash benefits. Um, another point, point emblem of concern is that the disability applications have become uh, very sensitive to the unemployment rate. When the economy turns down, more people apply for and ultimately receive disability. Uh, and it's not because uh, poor economic conditions make people less healthy. It's because it makes them less able to find work. And that suggests that this interface between the labor force and disability uh, is, uh, is stronger than you might like it to be. Inevitably, the definition of disability involves ability to do gainful employment. When there's less employment around, uh, Social Security, more people will apply, more of them will get awarded. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that is a concern. Um, another area of concern is the program expenditures. In 2009, these figures are slightly out of date, cash plus Medicare benefits on disability came to more than $185 billion. Uh, at present, it's more than $200 billion per year. 
And of course, the, the present value of a disability award for a typical entrant is almost $300,000. So each time someone receives benefits, uh, the amount you pay in a year is a small port, portion of the part that you, will, you are committing the public to paying over the remainder of that individual's uh, uh, career. The share of dollars of the OSDI program has risen uh, in 1987, which is kind of a low point, about 1 in 10 OASDI dollars were spent on SDI. Uh, by 2008, that was uh, almost 1 in 5. And of course, this leads directly to the uh, exhaustion of the SSDI trust fund. Now, uh, you often hear the simple, boring reason why disability has exploded, Washington Post. And uh, the simple, boring reason is, one, the population is getting older. And two, uh, more people are insured because more women are working. Um, Unfortunately, the simple boring reason is a myth. And we know it's a myth because of arithmetic. Uh, three factors on a mechanical basis can account for a rising share of the non-hourly population receiving SSDI. One is a change in the share of adults insured, more women working. Two is the aging of the population. Obviously, if more of the population is near elderly, more of them will have higher disability rates. Uh, more of them will be, will be disabled because disability rates are higher among the elderly. A third is change in age-specific prevalence. That's the unexplained component. Holding insurance status and age constant, more people claim, uh, apply for, and receive disability. The numbers say that population aging plus more women working explain only 40% of SSDI growth. Some estimates put that at 50%. There have been multiple efforts at this. No one has found that e even more than half of the growth of the program can be explained by these two simple, boring reasons. So this shows you for uh, males, uh, females, and com them combined, the growth between 89 and 2011 accounted for by changing el eligibility, by population aging, and by age-specific increases. And you can see that's the top bar. The age-specific increase accounts for about 60% among all three of those populations. It is the case that for women, uh, you see that on the third bar, uh, about a third of the growth, maybe a little bit less, a quarter of the growth, is accounted for by uh, uh, eligibility, more women working, but it's relatively small. That is not the largest factor by any stretch of the imagination. So just looking across these categories, we find that, uh, uh, or I find, that 60% of the growth is, done, is due to growth in age-specific prevalence. Other people have worked on this recently, Mary Daly, uh, Mark Duggan, everyone gets a number around between uh, 50 and 60% of the explanation is not these simple, boring factors. Um, as was already stressed, uh, past projections of the growth of disability have dramatically underestimated what would occur, except in 1995. <laughs> uh, and uh, future projections seem, look similar. So essentially, uh, this is really, this, this information uses the 2011 trustees report, slightly out of date. There's a 2013, I've not updated the numbers. Essentially, the, the disability roles have risen by um, more than 5 million people in the last 10 years. SSA projects that over the next 20, they will only rise by another half million or so, right? So five million in 10 years, half million in the next 20. It doesn't seem very plausible. There are factors that, uh, that you know, may cause it to taper off. I don't disagree. Uh, the, the baby boom does pass through the eye of the needle eventually. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, um, this seems likely to be an underestimate of what's going to happen going forward. Okay, so how do we know the program's in bad health? And then I'm going to talk about what to do about it. Uh, Rising incidence uh, within age groups explains most of the growth, not population aging, not women working. So that's some unexplained policy factor or social factor. 
There's no rise in incidence of self-reported disability, yet there's a vast rise in the incidence of SSDI receipts. The composition of awards is shifting from heart disease and cancers, which I think everybody feels comfortable are uh, the types of disabilities we want to provide benefits for, to back pains and mental disorders, some of which are very uh, disabling, some of which are clearly valid and important, and some of which are much more marginal. Uh, and it's hard to judge those. Uh, rising sensitivity of the SSDI program to the labor market is itself a concern. Uh, the SSDI program claims a growing share of all of the budget of the OSDI program. And finally, uh, the program growth continually exceeds estimates and seems like poised to do so again, which again should make us concerned that we don't have uh, a good policy control on where this program is going. Okay, now let me talk about where, how we want to change. Um, why do we need to change directions? One, the program is the finances are out of balance. I think everyone would agree on that. Two, I would say the program is failing its mission. Uh, it's not serving disabled individuals well um, because it is uh, it does not provide assistance to people who could benefit and remain in the labor force. It is a program for permanent labor force exit at a time when we have lots of assistive technology, we have medical, better medical care, people have more sedentary jobs. There are many, many things that people with work limitations could do other than leave the labor force entirely uh, to spend the rest of their career receiving uh, benefits from the federal government. Um, SSDI is unlikely to stay politically untouchable for long simply because of this imbalance. But I think the good news is that it is possible to improve services to disabled and slow program growth within current expenditures. In fact, other countries have succeeded in bending the curve. We are not the first country to face this problem, and other countries have responded successfully to it. So what should reforms accomplish? Four specific objectives. One, they should support individuals with disabilities to keep working. We should front load assistance and back load screening. Right now, in general, if, you don't, if your disability application is rejected on the first round, which occurs in two-thirds of cases, uh, then you will spend one to three years applying for benefits. By the time that's over, whether you could work or couldn't work at the start, you won't be able to work when you're done. Right? You've been out of labor force for three years. It's going to be very hard to be rehired. So we want the time to intervene is early, when someone first develops a work limitation. Uh, that's the opposite of what we do currently. We want to provide positive incentives to workers. We want to reward work. We want to reduce incentives to exit labor force, maintain incentives to stay in, to stay working. Again, by design, not through SSA's fault, SSA, the Social Security Disability Insurance Program does the opposite. You can only receive benefits after you've left the labor force and for a significant amount of time. Uh, three, the program needs to calibrate incentives to employers. Right now, employers face no cost, no additional cost when a, a number of their workforce goes and applies for disability insurance benefits. But of course, that, that application is often uh, instigated by the worker being laid off. And in other countries, employers have, are actually now forced to take a role in keeping people employed, and they are experience rated and, and face financial costs when numbers, members of their workforce leave the labor force permanently and uh, go on government benefits. And finally, we need a system that's politically and administratively feasible. Uh, trying to do more uh, within the current budget uh, at SSA would be very difficult, but there's ways around that, as I'll say. So one policy option, I'll speak very briefly about this, is one that Mark Duggan and I have laid out uh, in a policy proposal we wrote two years ago for the Center for American Progress and the Hamilton Project. And let me say, this is, this is a big, a blue sky idea. You wouldn't want to implement this in law tomorrow. It's something you want to experiment with. 
But one idea is that uh, already a third of US workers are covered by private disability insurance policies. Uh, what those things do is they provide that first line of defense. As soon as an individual uh, develops a work limitation, they get uh, medical, sorry, sorry they get uh, vocational counseling, income replacement, and assistance to try to help them go back into the workforce. And, uh, and then if they don't succeed in that, individuals eventually will apply for SSDI and potentially receive it. Um, however, employers keep their, their disability costs lower and their insurance premiums lower by actually having workers successfully reintegrate. Um, and so the idea that we propose in our uh, paper is that the uh, private disability insurance's policies could serve as a kind of a front end on the disability system. In other words, just like Jagdish said, SSDI works correctly for people who have long-term disabilities that are going to keep them out of the labor force. It doesn't work correctly for people who are on the margin. This type of fast-acting policy could do much more for people at the margin. Um, given time limitations, I won't spend much longer on this. Uh, the, uh, so let me just skip these details. Um, let me say only what benefits occur through PDI, vocational rehabilitation services, workplace accommodations, which are mandated by the ADA, but then would be paid for by uh, insurance. Uh, for workers who maintain employment, partial wage replacement, so an incentive to stay working. And then uh, for workers who claim disability after losing a job, they would, there would be a, a mechanism for that as well. Um, what this would do is it would front load assistance. It would reward workers for working. It would calibrate incentives to employers, such that employers would actually be financially aware when many of the workers subsequently went on disability. That would raise their insurance premiums. And it would be administratively feasible because it would actually draw on a very large private sector uh, capacity that already exists. You would not have to start anew. Um, it's also modeled on existing institutions uh, like workers' compensation or temporary disability insurance, which is mandated by five states. Um, let me say, other countries have grappled with this question. This is not an insurmountable problem. Um, if we look at the Netherlands, right, this shows you uh, the trend in the Netherlands. Netherlands was, uh, people refer to disability as the, as the other Dutch disease because it was so commonplace in the Netherlands. Uh, this compares that to the prevalence of DI plus SSI in the US. And you can see the US is just trending up and trending up. And the Netherlands uh, peaked in the mid-1980s and then has made a series of reforms, most of which involve having the employer take direct responsibility. When a worker becomes disabled, the employer has to work with the individual, with a counselor, et cetera, and uh, is financially liable for the first two years of what occurs before the worker can transition onto public benefits. You can't imagine exactly that system happening here, but the point is uh, it's a model that causes employers to embrace, to recognize costs, and rewards workers for staying working. The Netherlands has done it. Uh, Sweden is in the process of a major reform. Australia has uh, grappled. Uh, the point being, not that we could just take one of these models and bolt it onto the US, but that the level of disability is ultimately a social choice. Disability is not a medical disorder, right? You do not uh, go to the doctor and the doctor says, I've run some tests and you have disability, right? Disability is a decision about uh, what level of benefits we provide, who has to work, and who has some remaining work capacity. And other countries have changed that margin over time. Our categorical definition of disability that says you either are or are not is, a, is an impediment to us making appropriate reforms. Um, let me just finally say in closing, uh, there are going to, any change of this type would have real costs and real benefits. 
I think people who would benefit are individuals with disabilities who would not have to leave the labor market to receive benefits, employers, uh, workers without disabilities who would face greater economic security, and uh, I think it also just fits with the US model of how we want to organize a society where we prioritize work. But any program that essentially changed the gatekeeping for SSDI and made it harder for people to leave the labor force and go immediately under the, under the program uh, would harm those who are primarily not medically disabled but are not very employable. And that, I think, is the marginal category that constitutes a substantial amount of growth. And so it is the case that if we did similar reforms like this, it would create a problem in terms of individuals who depend on SSDI, don't have good work options, and are not particularly uh, unhealthy by medical standards. So you would want, or at least I, would want to pair this type of programmatic change with, with changes to the earned income tax credit that would make it more accessible to older workers and to males who didn't have uh, dependents, uh, because they, those are the people who would uh, have trouble qualifying for benefits under this type of change. OK, uh, thanks very much for your time. I look forward to uh, the other discussions, comments, and your questions. Thank you. Thanks, thanks a lot. As I told you, it would be, uh, would be some interesting data there uh, and some ideas as well. Uh, next up is Steve Goss, who is the chief actuary at the Social Security Administration. So uh, I think someone who knows the numbers, uh, sort of forwards and backwards here. I also have to tell you, I've worked with Steve for many years, going back to some of the Social Security debates. And he is one of the few genuinely nonpartisan people in Washington. I have to say, uh, Steve is somebody who's guided by the numbers uh, without an ideological axe to grind, which is something very rare uh, around here. Uh, at any rate, he is the chief actuary of Social Security Administration. He's a staff participant on the National Commission on Social Security and the National Commission on Social Security Reform. Uh, he speaks regularly on this issue, is not surprising, and uh, happy to have him here today. So, Steve, you're up next. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and I'm glad to see we're a little bit flexible on time here. We are. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so let me start out with a couple of things. There's just so much to cover here. So many things brought up by Jagadish and, uh, and David here. Uh, no way to cover them all. So let me just hit a couple of hypotheses that, were, that are mentioned not only today, but have been mentioned a lot over the last couple of years that, we, that, that I would hope to address to some extent. First hypothesis is that the disability insurance program has changed a lot over time over the last 30 years, say. Uh, and I guess the title of today's session is that it's now more a welfare than an income replacement for people with severe disabilities. Uh, and I, I will hope to show to you that uh, it does not appear that 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 is the case and that there has been a change in that direction. The other is, uh, and I think actually Jagadish and David have pretty much answered the second question already in, in answering whether or not uh, the way the program is administered has had a, a, a really large effect on the increasing cost of the program, and they've suggested no. So let me just jump. There we go. Okay. Did that we go to, where do I point here? Next. It's changing? No, it was. We turned it back. Okay. There you go. Okay, did I? I hope that's just one. Well, what this is, that's four. Here's two. How do we get to three? Go again. Okay, the, where, where's the machine? So it's up there. You just, just, just click it. You're fine. It'll go. Oh, now it's to five. So how do we get yeah, to three? Can you want to slide three? There you go. That is weird. It's, uh, we can't get to slide three. It seems 
four, two. There you go. Okay, there, there is. Go. That's interesting. Okay, uh, obviously this slide didn't take. This slide basically is just to show you uh, the red line is unemployment rates. You cannot see all the little captions on here. If later on you're able to take a peek at this on your own or get a hard copy of it, you'll see the red lines are unemployment rates and it shows the economic cycles going back to like 1970. And the blue lines are the age sex adjusted to the 2000 insured population. Uh, incidence rates of disability, men and women together, but it's age sex adjusted so that age variation over time uh, and also changing gender distribution doesn't have any effect. And you can see that the incidence rates go up and down over time, they sort of hang in there. And the unemployment rate goes up and down over time. What you can't see on here uh, is captions of, of changes that have occurred over time, like bringing in pre-effectuation review, having CDRs, going to multiple impairments. We've had a lot of things happen over the last 30 years that have had effects in both directions on the way Social Security is operating. But you can see basically the age sex adjusted, and this is important. You have to be very careful about age sex adjusted rates, both incidence and prevalence, versus looking at gross rates. And the caution is to look at the number of disabled workers divided by the entire population uh, at ages 20 to 59 or 20 to 65 is just not a good thing to do. And we will see if we can get to the next slide sort of why this is. Well, first of all, let's address this question of has Social Security become welfare? And a lot of people have said this because when we have a recession, the number of people getting disability benefits goes up, there's an increase in applications. That's absolutely true. Let's look at our most recent recession. We can get a really good look at that by comparing the 2008 trustees report, which was our last one before we recognized we were going into the really, really bad recession that we've had recently to the 12, 2012 trustees report. Like David, I haven't gotten everything updated to the 2013 TR, but the good news is very little difference between 2012 and 2013 TR. You can see on the, on the powder blue, yes, uh, bars on the right, that shows how much the increase, how much increase uh, in the DI uh, benefit cost to GDP uh, we've actually had across this period for these years, 2010, 11, 12, 13. And going from the 2008, no assumed recession, to the 2012 trustees report recognizing essentially the full depth of the recession we've got. You can see a rather large increase in the cost of disability as a percentage of GDP. But if you look at the red bars in between, you can see how much of that is because of a reduction in GDP. Cost as percentage of GDP is determined by two things. How much is the cost? How much is the GDP? Well, G GDP has taken a big hit. Uh, the cost of disability has not gone up nearly as much as GDP has dropped. So got to keep that in mind. This next slide actually puts it perhaps even more in perspective when we look at the change in the number of workers in our economy between these two trustees reports from 2007 out to 2013. You can see quite a massive reduction in the number of people working in the economy. That reduces GDP, it reduces our payroll and the amount of taxes we have coming in. And you can see also on the same scale the, number, the change in the number of thousands of disabled worker beneficiaries that we have as a result of the recession that had not been anticipated later. So, uh, you know, when, when, a, when a recession hits, actually the largest effect on disability, it is true that it does have some effect on applications and number of people receiving benefits, but the biggest effect is, we hope, a very near-term effect, which just reduces the workforce, uh, the uh, GDP, and the, uh, and the payroll taxes that uh, provide the money for the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. David mentioned, I, I wasn't sure whether we would hear this time again, about how years ago the disability insurance cost was about 
of total Social Security cost, and it's risen to 20%. When I first heard, heard that, I thought, my gosh, if I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, so pretty soon it's going to be 30%. Now it's going to be 40%. It's going to keep on going. Well, actually, back in 1980, it was not 10%. It was 12.8% back at that time. Uh, and, uh, we, uh, and it has risen to 17.9%. Now, you can see in the blue line, on the 1995 trustees report, we projected it to rise to 16.9%. Again, we had not anticipated the recession. And the difference between 16.9% and 17.9% of GDP for the cost of the DIA, of, of as presented to the total Social Security cost is really essentially just because of the uh, recession that we've had. Back in the day in 1995, we'd projected that because of demographics and changing structure of the population, we dropped down to 12.6% in 2040. Now, we can't give you data on this one yet, but we're now projecting it'll be down at 12.4. So don't put a ruler on the trend and going from 12.8 up to 17.9 or 10% to 20% as some people have characterized it because clearly the demographics and the underlying structure of what's going on suggest otherwise. Now let's get into a little bit of that. Well, first of all, let's also look a little bit at sort of the, what we sometimes call the solvency of the disability insurance program. And I'm so glad that Mike led off saying that when we talk about this insolvency idea, which we actually refer to as our reserves being depleted, the trust and reserves being depleted at that point, it's not like the doors closed down and there's no benefits anymore. Uh, it's at that point we would have 80 cents of tax revenue still coming in for every dollar of taxes. And the good news is Congress has never allowed that to be a big problem. Congress has always acted in time because why? They like to get reelected. And then you know, if there was all of a sudden a 20% cut in benefits for 9 million people, they would have some issues. So they've never allowed that to happen. If there's anything you can be pretty certain of, it's probably that Congress is not going to allow that to happen. Other changes will have to happen. We're going to have stuff happen. David talked about some of these. Who knows what they're going to do? Uh, we have some ideas. But if you, look, if you look at this curve, you can look back at the 1995 trustees report, which I focus on because that was right after the 1994 tax rate reallocation, which was the last major change legislatively that affected the DI program. And you can see on the black line, actually, as you approach 1995, the disability insurance trust fund, as a percentage of our annual cost, we call it the trust fund ratio, was going down and going down pretty rapidly, uh, moving towards 1995 expected exhaustion of the reserves much like we're now projecting 2016. Well, at the time, the Congress came in and said, let's, let's reallocate some of our total tax rate, not changing the total tax rate at all, shifting some of it from OESI, which was much better funded, over to DI. And you can see the result, the black line, back in the 1995 trustees, what we projected the DI trust fund would grow, and then it would gradually go down and become depleted in 2016. Well, a wonderful thing happened after 1995. We hit a period, anybody ever heard the words, the new economy? Well, we hit a period between 1995 and 2005 during which the economy was really roaring ahead. Remember, 20% returns in the stock market. All kinds of great stuff. Uh, a lot of us thought that was probably not exactly sustainable. The trustees were, were, were pretty good on holding back on that. But the positive effects of that period and the lack of expectation that it was going to crash and burn the way it did uh, led to having the blue line. And the blue line, by the time we got to the 2008 trustees report, remember the last one before we recognized the current recession that we've gotten into, uh, actually showed uh, things looking a lot better as they were through 2008 for the DI program. And our trajectory down for the trust fund ratio was gradual. We were projecting actually out in 2025 at that time. Again, not anticipating the recession. So along comes a recession, again, remember largely, drop in revenue, uh, more, much more so than increase in benefits. And you can see the red line is where we're at now, recognizing the recession as of the 2012 TR. 
2013 TR is exactly the same thing. We're back to the 2016 expected date for trust fund reserve depletion. So what really happened between 95 and uh, the 2012 and 13 TRs is we had the new economy, which a lot of people thought was going to go on forever, but a lot of things don't go on forever, and especially including the new economy. Uh, just to, to get a look, and I think David had something like this earlier, we can see the cost of the DI program expressed as a percentage of gross domestic product, the ultimate bucket that everything has to be paid for out of. And you can see how that has grown. Actually, it was going down uh, from about 1975 to 1990, interesting. But since 1990, it's been going up. And in fact, uh, the DI cost, uh, the blue line here you can see, actually took quite a surge when, you know, in the very recent couple of years. Again, and this is a cost as percentage of GDP. It took a surge because the recession hit, obviously. Uh, and we project that it will actually recede back from that and level off. Now, the question is that David raises the question, why would anybody, uh, following the rules that Jagadish suggested of trying to calculate the number of insured, apply incidence rates, project that it's going to level off after all this increase? Well, we would suggest the important thing is to keep in mind what caused the increases in the past. And there's a little hint here. The hint is, back in 1990, at the low point of the cost of disability as percentage of GDP, the baby boomers were in the workforce, but they were at ages 25 to 44, where there isn't much disability, relatively speaking. And by the time we get to 2010, the baby boomers are still in the workforce, but they're at age 45 to 64. That's where the disability rates are. So we should not be surprised to see the cost as percentage of GDP going up. Uh, now, let's sort of break this down. So we go back, and David, I think in one of his latter slides, actually did have the sort of the number of people receiving disabled worker benefits. And we can see back in 1980, we had, what, a little less than 3 million people receiving disabled worker benefits. And it's off-sited, yeah, we had a 187% increase between 1980 and 2010. So what caused all that big increase? And David had that, I guess, going from 1980 to 2010. I've just reversed it here, because I want to start here with, a, with this 187% this higher in 2010. And let's break it down piece by piece about how we can explain that increase. I mean, you, it's hard to, I will tell you, it's hard to project the future unless you not only see the past trends, but understand what caused them. And then you've got to decide what kind of causes will be affecting things in the future. So let's take the first thing we could consider here, and that is uh, just the size of the population. Now, if you look at prevalence rates, you take that out, but as David had in his, his, his graph, if we look at the number of people receiving disabled workers, we know that the size of the population age 20 to 64 between 1980 and 2010 increased by 41%. Well, okay, so if we take 41% out of the level of 2010, then we get down to just by population growth size alone, uh, we see that the bar drops to that level. Okay, let's see, so what's next? Uh, well, the next is really the aging of the population, as David and Jagadish both talked about. This graph I won't spend a lot of time on because I don't have a lot of time, uh, but, but this, this graph is incredibly uh, uh, instructive, I think. And if you look at the purple line, the per below the purple line are all the uh, adult age population between 25 and 65. And the adult age population, of course, are the people who can either be getting disability benefits and or be working. And so the share of them that are receiving disability benefits is really important. Well, since we know between 45 and 64, that's where disability benefits are much more likely to happen, you can understand what was happening on that earlier graph about the cost of percent of GDP. Remember between 1975 and 1990, the cost of percent of GDP was actually dropping? Well, look at how fat 
the distances between and green purple lines, and it's shrinking between 1970 and 1990, as we had what? The baby boomers entering the workforce at young ages. So we were having a lot of extra workers, but they weren't at the ages that were disability prone. So the cost as percentage of GDP shrunk, as you would expect. Between 1990 and 2010, the opposite happened as the baby boomers flipped over into higher disability prone ages, and so we have an increase in cost. Now, as you look into the future over the next 20 years, uh, we're gonna have the big surge in, in the baby boomers flipping in to the retirement ages, and that has an effect on the retirement cost, but actually it has the opposite effect on disability costs. It will actually serve to attenuate, not expand the cost of disability. So this, this again, this is, as Bill Clinton famously said, just arithmetic. Uh, this is cooked in the books. This is where we know we're going. So the age distribution alone, when we calculate that, simply by looking at 1980 versus 2010, at the gross prevalence rates of disability versus the age-adjusted prevalence rates of disability, and we have these right on the trustees' report, we can show you the, the tables, uh, this suggests that uh, if we did not have that age distribution uh, or change, we would have 38% higher levels of disabled worker uh, benefits. So 38% of the increase that we have in disabled worker benefits in 2010 versus 1980 is due to the fact that we've had this massive shift of the boomers rising up in that age. And by the way, the, the bad news here is that that age distribution doesn't really change because the real reason the age distribution changed so much is because the birth rates dropped. And that will cause younger ages to be smaller relative to older ages across the board as we go into the future. A topic for, uh, for another day's discussion, maybe when we're talking about retirement. Okay, so what's the next thing we can use? You, you can see these bars are marching down. They're starting to look a little bit more like 1980, right? Uh, the next one is, well, the normal retirement age was only 65 back in, 20, in, in 1980, and it's now 66, one extra year. Well, I only just added in here the 4% of people who are receiving benefits at 65 who wouldn't have been under the old. Actually, it's, it's even a little bit more than this because we know that we estimate that the incidence rates at ages a little bit under uh, 65 are slightly higher now as a result of having the increase in normal retirement age. But just to outline in the 4%, that takes the bar down a little bit more. Okay, so what's the next thing we can talk about? Well, we can talk about uh, actually the uh, insured rates. David alluded to this. And this graph, we think, sort of tells a pretty strong tale. Back in 1970, women were, what, 37% of women in the population uh, were insured. Now, this is on a gross rate basis. This is not on an age-adjusted basis. But 37%, and it's about doubled. Women's insured rates have, have about doubled over time and are now very much in the same sink as men. Uh, we're going to come up with a better graph on this one, which would be all age-adjusted. But we have done the work to get it age-adjusted, and we have calculated, somewhat to our surprise, that when you do it not on a gross basis but on, a, on an age-adjusted basis, we end up with a 21% higher level of disabled worker beneficiaries because of the increase in insured status. And again, that's not really surprising when you see women who are half the population, how, much, how many more of them are insured, they're allowed to get disabled too, unfortunately. So when you have this massive an increase in the insured requirements for women, or 10, yeah. uh, when, when you have this massive uh, increase in the percentage of women who are insured, uh, the men look like they're actually coming down. Actually, if we weight that, by age or propensity to become disabled, the men have actually not even changed. Uh, male disability insured rates have dropped a little bit over the past 30 years, under age 40, and they've actually gone up a little bit over age 40 
And this is just sort of a, a, a gross look at the percentage, which is sort of misleading. We'll fix it, I promise you. Uh, so that's the disability insured component. You know, we're getting even closer to 1980. So let's add in one more component, and that is the recession itself. It happens, if you recall back to the graph, which uh, we couldn't really see because uh, it was a little bit obliterated, that graph three that we had a hard time even getting to. Uh, you can see that in 2010, we're what? About three, four years into uh, a pretty deep economic downturn. Uh, and we have, in, in the year 2010, about 5% more disability beneficiaries in that year than we had anticipated back in the 2008 trustees report in the absence of a, uh, of a recession. Now, this is a plus relative to 1980 because 1980, wonderfully, was a period where we're three or four years well into a very strong economic recovery. And uh, maybe in the question and answer period, uh, if anybody's interested, I would love to, to give you the little story about what really happens uh, in the cyclic nature of unemployment rates and, and applications to the disability insurance roles. Uh, finally, we've got 12% we haven't exactly explained because it's a little bit harder. The 12% we haven't explained out of this 187% increase over the 30 years is pretty clearly due to incidence rates, as David was suggesting. And you can see the incidence rates here. These are male and female. Again, age-adjusted incidence rates. Not gross, just doesn't make any sense. Remember between 1990 and 2010 when we had a massive shift towards more people at 45 to 64. If you look at a gross incidence rate, it'll look like it blew up. It got really big because there are so many more people at higher ages. You've got to do it age-adjusted or it makes no sense. You look at the blue line for the males. Well, it's kind of bounced around a lot, economic recessions and everything, but it's actually kind of hung in there. It's, there's not a lot of change, really. The women are the story. The women have just really come up in terms of incidence rates uh, relative to men. This is the fascinating part of the story. Women have not only doubled their likelihood of becoming insured, but given they're insured, and these, by the way, this is incidence as a percentage of the insured population, not of the total U.S. population. You have to be very careful about looking at prevalence or, or disabled worker prevalence or disabled worker new beneficiaries as a percentage of the total population because that incorporates both the likelihood of, of having incidence of disability and the likelihood of being insured all in one. We like to pull them apart so you can actually see what's going on. But here, this is pulling it apart. This is new awards as a percentage of the exposed population. You can see it's increased a lot for women. Okay, so where are we on D? Is the sky falling? We think not. Is there a problem? Uh, absolutely, yes. We, for, for disability insurance, we have a deficit as a percentage of our long-term payroll of 0.32% of payroll. Actually, I was kind of surprised yesterday when I saw that it was 0.37 in the 2012 trustees report, and it's 0.32% of payroll on average over the next 75 years in the uh, 2013 TR. Now, I would not suggest we should go out and say, well, there's not a problem. There's clearly a problem. We clearly have a shortfall of the scheduled taxes relative to the scheduled cost of the program. But as you can see, what we're projecting now, based on the simple extrapolation of, of demographics and what we know, uh, we are not expecting the cost of the program to go from 12.8% of GDP to now 17.9% of GDP to, I don't know, what, what would you get on a ruler? It depends on how far out you want to go. That obviously makes no sense and nobody would want to push that. So what could we do going for, forward? There are a number of things. We've actually done for Senator Coburn. Uh, some estimates are up on the web. Uh, you know, we, we could increase the, the taxable maximum even just for DI. Uh, we could lower benefits for DI. Uh, in many different ways, we could time limit benefits. 
uh, increase the vocational grid ages, which are now locked at, what, 50, 55, 60. Uh, note one thing, though, very carefully, that one of the common things talked about very, very much, and that we already did back in the 1983 amendments, is to raise the normal retirement age for Social Security. That's a way to reduce the total system cost. But you all know what that does. That shifts costs from the OESI system to the DI system. So don't think we're going to cut the cost of DI by increasing the normal retirement age. You'll do exactly the opposite. You'll have uh, people up to now 66 still receiving from the DI fund. If we increase the uh, normal retirement age further, as we will by 2022 to 67, that by itself shifts more cost to the DI program. And that's actually factored into uh, what we have here. Uh, we have some additional material. Let me just pop to one little item here because David mentioned something about the changing basis for people getting disabled. Uh, and here we have just, for example, women aged 30 to 39. And these are the percentage of newly entitled women at ages 30 to 39 going back to 1982 out to 2010. And the share, the percentage of the new entitlements uh, by their primary diagnosis code. And uh, you know, uh, at one point, I know in talking with Mark Duggan, he, he was saying it's all about metal. Well, you know, the metal has stayed pretty much the same. In fact, everything has stayed pretty much the same for age-specific. And again, you've got to look age-specific or age-adjusted on these things. Uh, males, well, males are a little bit more interesting because you see that little powder blue area that got thick. That's HIV. But, but the good news is that HIV has been essentially controlled, and that's really no longer the factor that it once was. Uh, this is at age 30 to 39. Now let's look at ages 50 to 59. 50 to 59, this is the females, and I agree completely with David. It, the, you can see the maroon part has gotten bigger, that's musculoskeletal, but at the same time, the yellow one, which is what, I think the circulatory, like cardiovascular, that has shrunk. Statins, all that good stuff has shrunk that. Now, how much of the increased musculoskeletal is just because of easing of standards in the program? And how much of it is because maybe some of those people that used to have circulatory problems, you know, still have issues and, and it moves on. Females, uh, perhaps even more dramatic. No, I'm sorry, this is males. Males, even more dramatic. Tremendous shrinkage in the percentage of the population coming on the disability rolls with circulatory and an increase in the musculoskeletal. But if you put the two together, Interestingly, they're about the same. So with that, I will stop uh, and uh, we'll pass the baton and look forward to questions and discussion going forward. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, one, more, uh, one more speaker, and I have to tell you, uh, anyone who works in the issues of, of poverty uh, and social policy uh, comes across Harold Pollack. Uh, his work is uh, sort of standard reading for all of us uh, in the field, someone you, you have to come across. And even if you're not a scholar in these fields, you run across him in the New York Times, Washington Post, the LA Times, and pretty much everywhere. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a prolific writer. Uh, he's also the Helen Ross Professor of Social Service Administration and the faculty chair of the Center for Health Administration Studies at the University of Chicago. Uh, and uh, as I say, we are delighted to have him here as well. So I'm going to turn it over to you to close out the formal parts of this presentation. Thank you so much. I, I must say I have PowerPoint envy seeing the, uh, the really terrific presentations before me. Uh, uh, I, I, um, uh, I'm going to be a little bit orthogonal to some of the talks that we've seen before, partly because uh, when I heard the term welfare, I think there's there's some issues that, that are in the public conversation that deserve discussion, and also because I think that the, the, my three uh, predecessors did such a wonderful job of laying out 
in some cases laying out the disagreements, but of laying out uh, some of the some of the fiscal challenges we face in uh, in SSDI. I must say, I was I was talking to some of my friends in the liberal conspiracy uh, about this. Talked to it as a little nervous uh, as uh, as someone who is uh, more uh, 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 more ideological. There, um, by the way, this is my favorite Rubens painting. Uh, so uh, there, uh, uh, and I, I should say that. I especially appreciated being invited here to Cato because I, I think you just, I, I often disagree with the writing that, that my colleagues produce here, but I more often learn from it. And the fact that, that it's a principled rather than a sort of operationally political perspective, I think allows us to have a really interesting conversation across normative divides that we often can't have when it's a purely uh, sort of political instrumental conversation. Uh, so that said, repent. Uh, they, uh, uh, so I, I want to say a couple things. One is disability and the rhetoric of crisis, which I, I basically, my, 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 my bottom line reaction to what David presented was, I, I don't think I want to buy into the idea that we have a crisis going on, but I do want to buy into some of the policy ideas that you have, which I think, if we think of this as a long-term issue that we have to get right, I think that there's a lot of merit in that. Uh, I do think we have to situate SSI and SSDI in the broader context of disability policy as well uh, so that we can understand why is this such a big challenge and, and what are we really trying to do here. Uh, so first thing, I actually think that disability policy is one of the quiet successes in American life. I think if you look at areas where on a bipartisan basis, a very broad swathe of America has tremendously improved the lives of millions of people. It's hard to do better than disability policy. I take care of someone who's intellectually disabled, and if he, if he had been born 10 years before he was, he would have spent his life in the back ward of the state home for the mentally retarded or whatever the euphemistic name was that was given. And every day we, um, uh, you know, we benefit from, uh, from tremendous changes in legal protections, entitlements and also in popular culture that has really opened up, that has allowed us to, to embrace people living with disabilities in a way that is quite remarkable. And if you, for instance, travel, I take him on vacations. One thing we don't do is go outside the United States. Uh, just physical accessibility, physical accessibility is so different. Even in the social democracies of Europe, try getting in the front door if you're physically hobbled in the, some of the great cities uh, uh, that we know. And uh, SSI and SSDI have played a critical role in this progress. It's certainly, they haven't been cheap or easy, uh, but they're something that we can take pride in and want to support and, and keep healthy. Uh, so I, I think we have to put in context that, uh, that overall disability policy is actually a success story in America in many ways. Uh, I do think that uh, disability will never fit neatly into uh, public policy implementation. And, and as uh, as David and others mentioned, uh, disability is an administrative construct, which is which which is a, trying to apply a binary standard to a continuous and multi-dimensional package of impairments and functional limitations, and that is really and plus we have to do this on a national scale that involves complex and imperfect administrative processes that affect millions of people, and we we sort of can't stop and do an OJ trial for every person. Who's, who, can, who comes to the SSI and SSDI system, uh, which makes us inherently vulnerable, uh, A, to making mistakes, but B, to generating the kind of anecdata that leads to stereotypical 
depictions of, the, of these programs. And one of the ironies, by the way, is many of the same policymakers and commentators who are lamenting the poor implementation of the program fail to support efforts to improve the administrative capacity of the program, and uh, which makes some of the uh, difficulties that we have more difficult to handle. Uh, and I do think there's also the idea that disability is, an inher is inherently an interaction between an individual's capabilities and limitations and what's happening in the labor market. And there is, uh, uh, and there's no completely escaping that, certainly not during this current recession. Uh, David mentioned a point that I also was going to raise, so thank you for ruining my, uh, for ruining my point. The, uh, uh, that, that there is this- Sharing your slides in advance? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> there is- um, Just kidding. I, I didn't, had I shared them, that would have been a tactical error. The, um, uh, there is a difference in premise between these disability programs, or not, or not a difference in premise, but a tension between disability programs and the ADA, and that the ADA is really trying to integrate people into communities, into the workforce in our common life, and in many ways disability programs are, uh, uh, are seeking to help people who cannot work. Now, by the way, the disabled population is so heterogeneous, you need to think in both ways, because not everybody can take advantage of some of the employment issues that the ADA seeks to make possible. And there's also a real gap between these two programs that is worth noting. One of the ironies with the ADA is the ADA is very good at, at coercing, nudging, trying to get employers to improve the workplace, to deal with specific issues that a worker might confront in a particular place. It's not so good at dealing with general human capital issues where there's really no issue of an actionable misbehavior by your employer or by anyone else. And, you know, if I need to, within my workplace, if I need to have a particular way to move around because I have a physical disability, my employer may be legally obligated or may be obligated by the broader norms of ADA to provide that. If I need a scooter to get to my workplace, that, that really has nothing, my employer has nothing to do with that. And one of the ironies in this is uh, the general human capital, which is many ways, in general ways that people need help to get back in the workplace, there's no one really responsible for that. Uh, and, uh, and that's one reason why, among many, that the ADA has not harmed labor force participation among the disabled, but it really hasn't helped that much either. And uh, there's, uh, uh, so I think that's, that's just a gap worth noting. Uh, I, I do think that it's important to debunk some of the stereotypes that are floating around. I think programs are portrayed as being more generous than they are, and by providing more attractive to, works, to work than they do, uh, and also being more lax than they are. Uh, and I was very dismayed uh, by the, the, I thought this, this American Life had this story, which in some ways was a beautifully rendered study. It was a story called Trends with Benefits, which talked about many of the issues that we've talked about today, and probably many of you have listened to that talk. It combined a beautifully humane element with also elements that really reinforce some of the stereotypes that we have, one being a lack of emphasis on the, uh, the number of people who are turned away from the program, particularly for these ambiguous diagnoses that David mentioned. The reality is that people, very large majority of people are, are initially rejected, and, 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 the, and, and depending on how you count, a majority are actually rejected out overall. Uh, and also, uh, you know, Jagadish mentioned the type one and type two errors. You need to think about both. And e errors of improper enrollment are given greater attention than errors of improper denials and delays whose human cost is often equally as great. Uh, so uh, so I, I think that it's, it's really important to, to understand. Uh, uh, I think there, that uh, 
you know, the, we didn't talk a lot about the childhood SSI program today, but I think that's particularly when the word welfare is used, that that should be mentioned. Uh, there's, uh, and we just know that the, the, the sort of moral hazard issues that people talk about, there are many reasons to think that this issue is overblown, one being that look at the low labor force participation and the low wages among people who are denied benefits. And it seems to me that we're dealing with a group of Americans whose options are pretty limited, and we could, we could help them better with an SSI and SSDI, but the idea that we are creating a drag on the economy by, by dragging lots of otherwise productive workers into this program, I think is, is very much overstated. Uh, I also think it's important to talk about the health insurance issue. Uh, you know, many of, the, many of the commentators who are talking about the great cost of SSI and SSDI include the cost of health insurance as, as a key thing that's getting out of control. And I think we have to recognize that many of these people, whatever program we have, whatever assistance they have, they're going to need help to pay for their health care. And we need to divorce that from issues about whether or not they can work. Because when I talk to people who are thinking about going into the uh, SSDI roles, one of their biggest problems is that's the route by which they can get their health care needs addressed. Now, hopefully, the uh, uh, health reform law will, uh, will help us with that. At the moment, that's, that's a hypothesis, <laughs> uh, particularly in states that have not picked up the Medicaid expansion. Many of these people are really going to struggle. Uh, I was actually going on the campaign trail uh, for the Obama campaign in 2008. It was right after the Reverend Wright scandal broke, and I think I was having about the same success that I would have if I walked around the Cato Institute with the same uh, mission, uh, uh, except I came across one house that had an Obama uh, sticker, you know, a sign out front. And they were having a garage sale, and they had maybe three or $4,000 worth of trinkets out on the lawn. And they were raising money because the son-in-law of the homeowner was, uh, has a very serious liver problem. He was actually getting excellent care at Northwestern, but he was on the waiting, the Medicare waiting list, and he was going medically bankrupt. And the we spend $2.8 trillion in our healthcare system, and yet the people who are obviously disabled, in, in his case, for example, are often treated with such a lack of humanity that that is just as important as the other issues that we've talked about today. Uh, um, and I, and I'll just show you a few more things. One is there's this, this idea that somehow that disability programs have supplanted the welfare system, that we have a low-income welfare population that has sort of moved from traditional welfare, AFDC or TANF, to, um, uh, to SSI. And, uh, and that was something that was, that was not stated but was implied in this, this American Life episode. And I think it partly gets to the issue of what do you think about the legitimacy of mental and behavioral disorders. And I think that, that, that those, those are often subjective in our ability to administratively codify them, they are just as real as many of the physical issues that people have. And you know, major depression and bipolar disorder and, and many other conditions are quite, quite debilitating. Uh, and people have an expectation that if you talk to someone with one of these problems, that as you're talking to them, that they're going to relate to you somehow in a pathological way. And if they don't, then they must be faking it. And there was an interview in This American Life with a young boy named Jaleel Dirac, who was a uh, uh, who, who was a wonderful, bubbly young man and who was on SSI. And the clear implication listening to that was, this, this guy's mom really, he doesn't need this benefit. He's a nice kid, but he doesn't need this benefit. And I've talked to a lot of kids who have 
various kinds of issues on the autism spectrum, a major depression, a lot, of, a lot of them, they sound exactly like this kid. I will tell you, that is what people sound like when they have a lot of real disorders. Uh, and there's also just a basic numerical issue that if you look at the movement from AFDC TANF to SSI, it's just pretty small. We, we were, I was involved in a longitudinal study called the Women's Employment Study in Michigan, and we studied 500 long-term welfare recipients. And uh, we found that, that over time, uh, 37 ended up on SSI, and another 114 applied but were rejected. So, it's, so I think it's important to know that these programs are not, it's not a piece of cake to get onto these programs. Now, it may, uh, there are regional differences, and it may be that if these, this family were in a different place, it would have had, these families would have had different uh, experiences. And I'll show you one other thing. Uh, so this is a graph that I just picked off of This American Life, which shows you on the top we have the number of families on welfare and how it declined, and on the bottom we have the number of people on disability roles. And you look at these two things, and obviously you sort of try to add them up, and you say, wow, it looks like uh, they basically add up to offset each other. Now, of course, what's wrong with this graph, it's really two completely unrelated populations. Uh, and actually, if, and, and it, if you show the right graph, it brings to mind one of the really key, key issues we're not talking about in the recession, which is our failure to support people uh, outside of the disability system who are really in need. So this, by, I apologize, this is a horrible, seeing the beautiful PowerPoints, I, was, I knew that I was going to humiliate myself with this one. The, uh, this is the, what this is, the dotted lines in this graph are, are the, uh, the, the dotted, uh, let's see, do I have a pointer here? Uh, this dotted, I guess I do have a pointer. Uh, they're, uh, the dotted purple lines, the percentage of poor kids who are receiving either SSI or AFDC-10. And what, what's happening over time, the green line is just the number of kids who are in poverty. And the, the, the red line here is the number of kids on SSI, and blue is AFDC TANF. And what's happened is we've had this enormous, enormous decline after welfare reform in our public support for kids below the poverty line. I actually was a big supporter of welfare reform until a couple of years ago. I would say I thought, I was one of the liberals who said, you know, this wasn't as bad as I predicted. I just didn't say big supporter, but I thought welfare reform kind of came out okay. During the recession, what we found is, no, it's not okay, because the roles have stayed very flat while the proportion of people in need has exploded. And there's, and, and there's absolutely, the growth in child SSI caseload is just nothing near the decline in, in the TANF roles. So it is certainly not the new welfare in the sense that numerically it's accounting for a lot of kids who are low income and need help. Uh, so, uh, and, and I'll make a couple other points, and then I'll sit down. Oh, I didn't even see how much time do I have. About three. Ready? Oh, good. I can live with that. The, um, you know, SSI and SSD are a little bit like Medicaid. You know, when Medicaid's costs explode, people ask, you know, what's wrong with this program? And usually the answer is, well, it's actually everything else happening in social policy and the economy, and Medicaid becomes the safety net that's picking this up. You know, David mentioned the people who are, who are sort of marginal in their disability determination, but who are practically unemployable. You know, that is, that's a broader social policy failure that, that, that in an imperfect way, SSI and SSDI are helping with. Uh, so, so let me just say some points of agreement that I have with the presentation that, that uh, the presentations that I saw before, because I thought they, all three of them were excellent, I thought. One is I do think we have to protect the long-term viability of the program and make sure it's financially sustainable. We will not have, pro progressive public policies can't be sustained if they run a chronic deficit. 
I don't actually, I'm not so worried about 2016. I think that's sort of an artifice of the way we finance, but we have to put this on a long-term basis. And I also think that, so funding more of SSA's institutional capacity is an area that I think both liberals and conservatives should agree with and, and, and others. Uh, and thinking how we can run the program better. Uh, I also think the idea of moving things to the front end is a very fruitful idea because uh, I think that there is some truth to the idea that once people are in the process, A, they really suffer during those couple of years when they need help. You know, uh, imagine you have a person with a serious mental health problem, and then they say, well, you're going to be put into a two- or three-year process now where, you may, where you're likely to be rejected. Uh, so people don't get help, and we know that their ability to get back in the workforce, both in terms of the economics and also in terms of the psychic realities of what it's like to be a person out of the workforce a long time, uh, we know that's going to be really hard. And the more we learn about statistical discrimination against the long-term jobless, the more this concerns me as well. Uh, so I think that the idea of private and temporary DI policies could fit very nicely within, you know, within a, a very useful way to augment the program. Uh, I also think we need to pay attention to health reform and make sure that it's fully and properly implemented because no one with a work-limiting condition should, be, should have difficulty obtaining uh, health coverage. And these people are going to require subsidies because they have expensive problems and they have low incomes. And that's completely independent of whether we want them to be in the workforce or not. If you want someone to take a job at a $9 an hour wage rather than to take SSDI, you've got to provide them with health coverage or, the, or it doesn't make sense for them or, or for anyone else. Um, so I'll stop here. And I, again, thanks for inviting me, and I really learned a lot from the presentations. Well, thank you. As I, as I promised you, we'd have a discussion that uh, cut across ideological lines and had a lot of information. I'm sure you're all PowerPointed out at this point. Uh, uh, we're going to have a quiz on the various numbers that you've seen uh, before you're allowed to, to eat today. Uh, on that. Actually, before we move on to, to food, I, I do want to give you a chance to ask a couple of questions uh, up here. So we are going to give you a few minutes to, to ask any questions. And folks, you can answer or ignore the questions as you will. And you can treat it like Congress. And you can ask, you know, if you want to uh, have a chance to respond. To That's right. Answer the question you want and sort of respond to uh, each other as, as you do up here. We'll do that. So we'll take two or three questions. Uh, please uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself and ask a question. Don't give a speech. Uh, so we have one over there. Hi, Lisa Ekman with Health and Disability Advocates. And I guess my question is, um, when we look at employment for people with disabilities in the broader context of the disability support system, what role ought to the Department of Labor programs be playing to help people with disabilities stay in the workforce? What role should the vocational rehabilitation um, program be playing? And what role ought the Medicaid um, and health insurance be playing to help people stay in the workforce? I, I don't think Social Security is well equipped, resourced, or has the infrastructure or expertise to help workers. The role is for workers to support workers with economic security when they can no longer work due to disability, retirement, or death. Thank you. Anybody? Uh, I'd be happy to try to answer. Um, uh, I, I, uh, it is absolutely the case that SSA has no role in that, in, uh, in supporting people to stay in the workforce. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. I think the, we are under-investing 
in helping people stay in the workforce. And as Harold said, there's no no one's responsible for that. Like, you, you know, if you if you need accommodation at your workplace, the ADA says you can get it. If you need an accommodation to get to work, the ADA doesn't provide that for you. Um, that the proposal I was uh, sort of putting forward was one where resources would come to bear at the time that someone develops a work limitation to assist them to stay in employment. And the way our categorical disability system works is you can't get help until you're long out of the labor force. So I think we have the, uh, there are other resources. You said there's vocational rehabilitation, there's Medicaid, there's Department of Labor. It's, it's very fragmented and access to that is very uh, complex and not assured until such time as you already have disability, at which point it's probably too late uh, to actually benefit from that in terms of keeping people employed. So my, you know, some, uh, some people see me as a kind of a critic of the SSDI system, uh, although I don't think of myself as that. I'm a friend. Uh, but when I've spoken with more people in the, in the disability advocacy community, one thing that we really completely agree on is that our current disability system is focused on, is not focused on supporting people with disabilities to maintain economic independence, to maintain employment. It does the opposite of that. And I think I think all of us here, uh, or at least certainly Harold and I also agree, this is somewhere we should be investing more. In the back, uh, we'll give all, all of you guys who had your hands really so in the right, we'll start on the right hand side in the back. We can hear you. Yeah, so can the, SS, <laughs> so can the uh, NSA, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't like slide three, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. I, I would yeah, I'll just say it is a little bit more complicated than that. There's a variety of ways that SSDI does seek to, to help people get back in the workplace that allows them to keep, once you're on the SSDI roles, there's a variety of ways that the program really does try to help people get back in the workforce. Uh, I think one of the issues is it's a big challenge for people uh, to do that. Uh, especially if they've been out of the workforce for a long period of time during eligibility determination. There's actually, I think the financial incentives to get back to work are actually stronger than most people appreciate in the program. But I think that the problem is that at that point, it's, it's really hard for people to do that. And uh, now I do agree with you completely that people, people also worry that they will lose benefits. I think what, there's the literal incentives that people have, and then there's also the anxiety that they have that they may put in jeopardy this critical resource that they need. And if you if you send a signal to someone, you know, if you start to work, there's going to be all sorts of weirdly complicated problems and you don't fully understand how it's going to play out. People are going to be very risk averse 
about going to Starbucks and saying, you know, can I work for, for some period of time doing this job? And I, I think, so there's also a, a, I think the incentives are stronger than people realize, but those incentives require you to be a reasonably sophisticated microeconomist to fully parse out. And one of the things we've learned in social programs is those are the kinds of incentives that often are not effective, especially at that point in people's lives. Yep. I'm, you know, the, the current structure of the DI program, uh, and, and Jagadish made a good point earlier, I, I, I certainly would not agree that it's a temporary disability program, but it is clear that some people come on the rolls with recoverable impairments and others with really long-term impairments from which they're never going to recover. And the people who we have a, a shot at, at helping to get back to work are the ones with more of the recoverable impairments. Now, Social Security Discipline Insurance Program has a nine-month called the trial work period. If, you, if you're recovering, you're getting better, and you can work, uh, you are encouraged to go back to work. Why? You're encouraged because you can keep your entire benefit and earn any amount you want for, for nine months. After that, there's a period called the extended period of eligibility for 36 months in which you only have your benefit withheld for, for months in which you're earning over, what is it, about a, close to $1,000 a month now above the substantial gainful activity uh, level. And only after that are you at risk for being terminated if you continue to work at a high level. And your Medicare benefits continue for five years after that. Uh, and in addition, if you're terminated because of work, you, you have a period of time for which if you, if you fall out of work and your impairment has not really improved, we have something called easy back on. So there really is a lot of incentive and encouragement. But let me just say one little thing about the first question that, that Lisa mentioned, and that is what other programs are doing. You know, we have been kind of stressed in making our projections about what exactly will the effect of the Affordable Care Act have. Because on the one hand, if we have more uh, health insurance out there, more people gaining access to health insurance, hmm, that may take away one of the impediments to some people applying for disability insurance benefits. People who really can still work, uh, if they stop working, they're going to have a five-month waiting period for our DI benefits and another 24 months on top of that to get any medical benefits from Medicare. So some people might be held back from that. But with the Affordable Care Act making people below certain levels, well, 138% of poverty and up to, what, 400% of poverty getting subsidies towards uh, the exchanges and getting health coverage, that arguably could take away some of the impediments to filing for disability benefits. However, in the long run, we are hopeful and we, and we have full expectation that people having more health care earlier, especially those at most risk, will improve their situation in much the way that I think Lisa is referring to, so that hopefully these impairments will not worsen to the degree that they have historically. Uh, so basically, I, I would have to confess and tell you, as we did, our, our last technical panel was put forth by our, uh, by our advisory board, uh, Barbara Kennelly and Jagadish are the ones who, who, who put that forth. We told them that we don't really have any net effect from the Affordable Care Act on disability rates in the future because we have these two opposite factors working. In the middle. Oh, you're going to have to speak up. Apparently, the mic's not working.
David's uh, various various forecasts, um, what he projects out or put out there in his graphics, I should I should say, um, it seems like you're systematically underestimating the growth of beneficiary rates. Sure. Just just for the people who are listening in at home. Uh, essentially, the question was if you could sort of reverse engineer the, uh, the demographic projections and say, ah, see, we could show how we got to where we are fr in the, from where we were in the past. Why have the projections been so wrong uh, when you've made them going forward? Well, first, except, first except of all, for 1995. Well, for, first, of, first of all, for each of the bars we put on the percentages, so you, you can look at the percentages, and they're all sort of multiplicatively uh, accumulating percentages. The other point that I would make is relative to, to David's pointing out, you know, how the projections have happened in the past. That's why I specifically put in this uh, slide number, whatever it is, if you all have access to it later, slide number seven that showed what we were projecting back in uh, the 1995 trustees report versus what it came to by the 2008 trustees report because of what? The new economy. Remember, the big leverage that we've had on this is in the new economy, everybody was projecting massive improvement and massive gains in employment uh, and in real earnings growth, and that made all the programs look really good. Since 2005, that has really changed, uh, and our trustees' reports have gradually reflected that. So, yes, since the 2008 trustees' report, if you look at what's happened, it looks like things have really gotten worse, in fact, even since the 2005 trustees' report. But if you look over the longer haul, uh, you'll, you'll see that things have not really changed much. And one last one uh, over here. Just remember, you're standing between these folks and food. Uh, hi, I'm Daniel Marins from Social Security Works. Um, my, I hope I, you can turn me down if it's a two-part question, but the first part is uh, uh, for, mostly for David uh, Otor. Um, I guess my, my, my question is, is this really plausible to, to introduce these kinds of employer mandates potentially or, or, or asking, I mean, we've seen so much pushback against the Affordable Care Act's um, insurance mandate for, for these large employers in particular, and um, so you know, the kinds of things that might be plausible in the Netherlands with their kind of flex security ideas uh, see, just seem really strained credulity here. Um, and second thing is, I don't, I don't know if people have seen in terms of the work incentives, there's been some reporting that um, actually in some of these ticket-to-work programs that disability beneficiaries are exploited and paid less than minimum wage in some of these jobs. Um, do people, are people aware of that and what kind of enforcement would they like to see uh, against that? Actually. All right, we'll close with that. Great. Uh, on the employer mandate, I, I agree, it's a dirty word. Uh, the cost of private disability insurance is less than 5% of the cost of health care. And already a third of, pub, of private sector employees are receiving these benefits paid for by their employees, employers. So it, it's not that big a stretch. And if it's effective, which needs to be demonstrated experimentally, it will save money and it will save money in aggregate and eventually would reduce the payroll tax. Now, I know it's, it's always, you know, spend money now, save money later. <laughs> That's how everything is sold. And so I, I agree, it's a stretch. But uh, I think, it, uh, I, I think it, it's worth, I, I think it needs to be tested. And I would love to see a, you know, state-level experiment uh, to get a, a, an answer to that. Um, so I agree with your concern, um, but I think it's the best uh, mechanism we have for getting benefits out quickly for having the system put, you know, assistance up front, screening later. Um, just, I just add one thing to yeah. that. Um, 
I think it's so important that we have an experimental and pragmatic approach to these problems. And one of the things that we can actually learn in a positive way from healthcare is the value of doing demonstration projects and really learning what works and what can be implemented effectively. And when we do those experiments, you know, if you talked about prospective payment in Medicare uh, before it came out, a lot of people would have said, oh, that's so, you, you, you're dreaming that, that you could actually get people to agree to that or that it would save money or be effective or whatever. And when people, there was actually, you know, there was really one demonstration project that showed that, that you could actually do this thing. It wasn't even that it saved money, but that you could do this thing and nobody, like it didn't blow up. And it had a tremendous impact on the policy process. And I think that, that we need to take that pragmatic approach to this issue. And the policy process is sometimes responsive to data. It's not entirely... Uh, it sometimes seems like it's a completely cynical process, but I'm not, there, there are examples of real policy innovations in Medicare and in other places where people had a big impact by demonstrating uh, that you can get improved outcomes. Uh, so, so don't be, I wouldn't despair completely. All right, uh, with that, I'm going to let you go eat. Uh, if you go up to the second floor here to the George Yeager Conference Center, uh, just go out and go up the spiral staircase. We will have food for you. Uh, we thank you all very much for coming, and by all means, please thank our panel. It's, they're, they're terrific. Thank you.